Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Tree Church Bible Study. Now, normally we're going through the book of Romans. Uh, the, the teaching team is, at least, because that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings. I'm trying to wrap up uh, the book of Revelation, which I started at the first of the year, and we're still processing through it. We missed last week, and so this week I want to double up, and, and this week we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 12, and we're getting into a section of Scripture that is probably one of the most iconic uh, pieces of literature when it comes to apocalyptic literature. Uh, it, I would say it's probably these next three chapters that, that go together, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, um, probably some of the more well-known verses out of Revelation when it comes to like the, the weird images and things like that, and, and the, um, the, the different characters and beasts and, and all those different things. So, um, I, I'm glad that you're here. I hope you follow along with us. I'm going to try to explain this as best I can. Um, and so hopefully we walk out of this with a little bit better understanding of kind of what's going on in these passages. And, uh, and, and, and today we're going to be looking at some of the, the main characters. We are, we are looking at uh, th- these next few chapters really lay out this picture of this cosmic eschatological war. And if you don't know what eschatology means, it just means uh, the end times. So, um, and so there's this cosmic war going on, and, and John is going to tell us about it. And uh, today kind of kicks off that story. So we're going to be looking at some of the main characters in, in, the, in the beginning of the story. And then tomorrow, or uh, next week, we'll be looking at chapter 13, which has uh, some, some, some very... Uh, interesting looking beasts and and then in chapter 14 we'll look at the armies of heaven and we'll start looking at uh, how this kind of story is going to wrap up and play out. So let's jump into chapter 12 and then I'm gonna read through the I'm gonna read through the verses that we're gonna cover today which is the entirety of chapter 12 and then I'm gonna break it down and try to explain it as best as I'm best as I'm able. So starting in verse one a great portent in I love the NRSV's translation uh, 99% of the time. I don't love this word. Portent is just a simple, is simply another word for sign. The ESV translated sign, and I like that translation a lot better. Um, not because portent might be a more appropriate term, but they, they mean the same thing. It, and so um, better English is, or at least modern English, is sign. So a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent, another sign, appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as, as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that, we're, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, 
now have now have come the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those, those who dwell in them, and woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given, with, given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and a half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river, and the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore. All right. So, a lot going on here, and a lot of different timelines, and a lot of different... Um, a lot of different things. And so some of the questions that we need to ask is, is everything happening in a specific time order? When does that time order start? When does that, uh, is that timeline compressed at times and elongated at times? Those are, those are really good questions to ask here. And as we read it, I think that there are um, a lot of, there's a lot of mystery to this section. I'll just say that. And, and there's a lot going on. There's a lot of allusions to the Old Testament and, and stories that have happened prior to. There's a lot of allusions to Old Testament passages, um, things such as um, uh, the wilderness, uh, the wilderness being a place of testing and things like that. Um, there's a lot, of pass- a lot of places where we're seeing uh, like passages about the, the, the woman who has given two wings. That's a passage out of Isaiah where God promises his people that will bear them up on wings like eagles. And so, um, and so we have a lot of things going on here. And so I want to try to break down the characters of this portion of the story as, as up to this moment and kind of what's happening here for John. Um, I, I want to say this, though. There are a lot of different theories as to what each of these things represents and, and, and who they are. John tells us some of them. Some of them he doesn't. He gives us clues to some of them. Some of them he doesn't. And so the, the important part is, and I'm going to reiterate this at the end, but as we're looking at the, these different uh, characters and these different people, just the thing to keep in mind is that John does have a, a, an audience in mind, and they would have understood what he was referencing. We are trying to figure it out, uh, removed from his culture, removed from his time period. And so um, we have to first and foremost start with, who we think that he would be referencing. And, and this is tricky, it's difficult, but there are a lot of good clues to lead us to believe that John had specific uh, groups of people, instances, things in mind when he wrote these passages. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit more here at the end as we get into these next chapters, but I just wanted to give you heads up. As we study this, just be aware that there, there are other theories of this, but the best evidence that I've seen as I studied and, and the most of the scholars that I've read really come to the conclusions that, that John is referring to the, these 
um, these people or these groups of people or these characters. So, all right. So the first one is the woman. And most scholars think that this is the people of God. Now, there are some scholars who think that this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, because we, we're going to look at who the actual child was and, and who the, uh, the, the, the clues that we have is that the woman is going to bear a child that rules and reigns, and so, it, which is an allusion to the Messiah. Again, we'll get to that here in a second. But uh, best guesses are that this is actually representative of the people of God. And, and in history, that would be the Israelites, um, the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation, and, and then it's going to kind of uh, mold and shape into the church. So we see uh, that this woman is clothed in the glory of the sun. She's got the 12 crowns on her head, and which or the 12 stars, and the 12 stars would, would, would be representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, or at least I shouldn't say the 12 stars, but the number 12 is is, is often tied to the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And so we see that there's these 12, uh, these, this number of 12 on, uh, tied to her. And then we see that she's clothed in glory. So she has this special place. Uh, glory is bestowed upon this woman. But we also see that she's in distress and that she's having labor pains and she's struggling and she's in agony. And so we know that Israel's history, that the people of God's history has been littered with difficult times and agony. So Israel was occupied. um, I I wish I had the dates in front of me, but Israel had become a nation under King Saul, um, an an official king-led nation under King Saul, which passed to King David, which passed, who united all of the tribes uh, of Israel together. And then it, uh, under King David, they're united, and it passes to King Solomon. And then once uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over, then uh, the, the nation splits, and the tribes never are united ever again. And so what you have is the northern tribes, and then you have the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And these tribes are conquered and passed around from nation to nation. They're passed around by Assyria. They're passed around by Babylon, from Babylon to Persia, and Persia to Greece, and then Greece to Rome. And, and at this time, Rome is still the occupying power in Palestine. And so the people of God are, are experiencing anguish and difficulty and struggle and trial. And this has been the history of the people of God. Then that we see that, that they are to give birth to the one who will rule, and, and other translations say shepherd. And this is a reference to the Messiah, the one who will rule with iron. This is out of Psalm, I, I believe it's Psalm chapter 2, uh, verse 9, or it's either 9, verse 2. I, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but um, it's, it's one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Essentially, he will bring all the nations under the rule of this person. And this is an allusion to the Messiah, who John very much believes is Jesus. And so the people of God give birth to the Messiah, who is Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. And so we see all this kind of coming together there. And then we see that this woman flees to the wilderness to be nourished. And here we start to get a lot of Old Testament imagery going on. For the Old Testament, the wilderness was a time of testing and trial. We see that with Jesus. Jesus is taken into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested and tempted and tried. Um, 
Moses led the Israelites into the wilderness, a time of testing and trial. Their disobedience led them back into the wilderness for a time of testing and trial. And so um, we very much get this idea of Moses and the exodus of, of, of this woman who is taken to the uh, to the wilderness where where she is going to experience or the people are going to experience testing and trial. And yet at the same time, John says that she's taken there to be nourished. And so like the stories of Jesus and Elijah, um, two Israelites, two Jewish uh, prophets who were nourished in the wilderness, Elijah, Elijah flees from the prophets of Baal and, and gets really depressed or conquers the prophets of Baal, hears Jezebel wants to take his life, and flees. Goes to the wilderness and is just struggling through his faith and through his life at that moment. And, and God comes and nourishes him in the wilderness, through feeds him through birds. Jesus, after the 40 days of trial and temptation, he's nourished and, and cared for and ministered to by the angels. And so um, just keep this imagery in mind. So this this is kind of the, the, the image that we're getting from this, this uh, description of this woman. So if this is the people of God and, and, and they are in the wilderness, it's, it's this constant image of the people of God are in a place where God is caring for them, and yet they're experiencing suffering and they're experiencing difficulty. For John's churches, this is a very real thing for them. They live in a time and a place where persecution is very real. They live in a time and a place where it's difficult to uh, be faithful to, to Christ because it could cost them their lives. It could cost them their freedom. So John is, is portraying the, the people of God in such a way that they're experiencing trial and struggle, and yet with the promise that they're being taken care of. And it looks like uh, they're, they're struggled and cared for for it's, I believe the passages gives it in days, but the days amount to uh, essentially, um, I believe it's 42 months. Essentially, it's three and a half years is what it turns out to be. So, and, and if you remember back, this is not a literal three and a half years. It's, it, it's a uh, symbolic number that's used in other places in Revelation to, um, to kind of portray a limited time. So it won't always be this way. And so for a limited time, though, the, the people of God are going to experience trouble, trials, and, and, and tribulations. The child, uh, and I kind of mentioned it already, but the child is, is supposed to be Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb that we, we know from earlier chapters. And, and uh, what we see is that the, uh, the dragon, who, we, who we're going to talk about next, He's waiting to devour this child, and yet God protects him, and, 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 and this is, again, protected for a time. A lot of scholars think that this is representative of Jesus' protection during his ministry. Uh, the fact that he could walk around for the three and a half years and uh, accomplish what he was uh, going to accomplish, that he was protected in his ministry, that he was able to accomplish those things without um, facing the, the, the devouring dragon, I guess I should say. There's a lot of like speculation with that though. So um, why the child was caught up into heaven or what it means by that, there's not a lot of clues as to, to what's happening there. But we know that the child is the Messiah and he is the one who is with, the, the, with God at the throne 
as the lamb. So next we have the dragon. And John identifies the dragon as Satan or the devil. Um, he later goes on to say it was the serpent. And so we get this picture where it harkens back to Genesis chapter 3. And, and a, lot of, a lot of times uh, scholars will also see this as uh, the beast in, in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, we're, the, the beast that we see in Daniel chapter 7 a lot of times fit really well with the beast that we're going to talk about in Revelation 13. Uh, so John identi- just, just know that John identifies the red dragon as the Satan, the devil, um, the serpent, the great serpent that, that wars against the people of God. Um, he is red, and, and we remember from the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the red horse was a horse of war and of destruction. And so um, Satan is an instrument of war and of destruction. And so we see this, um, this in this imagery of the detail of him being a red dragon. He has seven heads and ten horns. Now, the, the number seven is complete, is completeness. There were seven mountains in Rome. Uh, there are, um, there, I believe that there were ten emperors. And so um, I, I don't know that John is getting to the place where he's starting to identify that yet. But what we see here is this completeness of power and completeness of, of um, because horn represents power. So um, he is essentially the uh, epitome of evil. We'll just call it that. He's the adversary. He, he's the accuser of the brethren. So um, that is how John is describing this red dragon. And then he devours the child. He's waiting to devour the child. A lot of scholars believe that this is representative of the, actually, when Herod goes and uh, has all the babies in, in um, uh, Bethlehem. Don't know why that name escaped me. But when Herod destroys the babies, uh, trying to kill the the um, trying to kill the uh, baby Jesus, why is my, my my brain is not working here? So, when Herod gives the order to have all the babies in Jerusalem or in, in Bethlehem killed, um, uh, he is uh, it, it's kind of this imagery. So, and then. Uh, what we see is that the red dragon is cast out of heaven by Michael and his angels. So again, I mentioned something about the timeline here. Um, a lot of a, a lot of thought is is that this happened prior to. Like, so if you think that the Messiah comes and then Satan was cast out of heaven, who we don't know. So that's the best way I have to say it. But what we see is that that Michael cast Satan out of heaven. He wars against him, and now he's left. To roam the earth. Satan is given, um, he's cast from the heavenly realm, but he's thrown to the earth. And, and while he's on earth, he is going to be the one who accuses and pursues the people of God. And th- this is going to be the church, those that follow the Messiah and follow his ways. So this is the red dragon. So these are the three characters. We've got the woman, we've got the child, and we've got the red dragon. We've got the people of God, the Messiah, and, and the Satan, the accuser. And this story is going to play out this way. The people of God, or the tribes of Israel, they, they had an adversary in heaven. The Messiah rescues and wins through his sacrifice. And Michael casts 
Satan out of heaven. Satan continues to make war on the people of God now on earth. And this is again, Satan begins to cause problem, problems for the church. They are cared for, but they're not comfortable. And this would express again, John's church's situations in this moment, that they are facing trials and tribulations and struggles and even potential martyrdom, persecution, but it yet they are not left or abandoned by themselves, that God is with them and God is taking care of them. And what John wants them to realize and to hold on to again, and he's been saying this throughout the whole time, that, that, that faithful witness is at times costly because of Satan's work. Because of, of evil in the world, following Jesus will at times be difficult. Because of evil empires and because of evil people and because of evil uh, cosmic powers, and these are all, all the different um, these are all the different enemies of the faith that Paul would lay out, the world, the devil, and, 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 and the flesh. And so this covers the devil works in all of those. And so John is saying that faithful witness is going to be difficult. And he even references in, in how, um, how the, uh, the church remains faithful. And, it, and he, he mentions it as martyrdom. He says they, they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives unto death. And what he's talking about is, is faithful witness, faithfully staying true to Jesus no matter what the cost. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that no matter what the cost, no matter how difficult, no matter how much we have to sacrifice, no matter how much um, it would affect our comfort, God calls us to be faithful witnesses to him. God calls us to follow after him. God calls us to pick up our disciple, to pick up our cross and to become disciples and to live our lives in such a way that all of our lives become um, uh, part of him and are accustomed to him. It's the same message I've been talking about since we started this. And, and, and it's that John wants us to hang tight to our faith, to grow, grow in our faithfulness to God, despite the cost that it would uh, cost us. So I want to close this out by just giving you kind of what's coming up in the, the, the next couple weeks. I want you to stay tuned to this because this story is to be continued. The, the dragon's war is about to come to, come to a head, and he is going to introduce his other counterparts. So um, we're going to see the dragon, and then we're going to see the sea beast, and we're going to see the land beast. And this is going to be in chapter 13. And I might break up chapter 13 into a couple different parts uh, just because it, it's a lot to kind of digest. Um, but we see these beasts appear. And, I, and some, of these, uh, some of this section that we're going to read in 13 is going to be some of the most iconic pieces of Revelation. Uh, the, the mark of the beast, the... Um, the beast with the, the four heads that, that look different, or, uh, and I'm trying to recall it off the top of my head, I apologize, but um, th it's some of the most iconic places where people want to try to figure out what exactly is John saying, is, and is there, 
clues or codes for the future in these sections. And, um, and then in chapter 14, we're going to look at the part the people of God play in this war, in this cosmic war that's going on between God, the Lamb, and the devil. So, and so I want to close with this thought, and just as we prepare for next week and looking at uh, chapter 13. This has a lot of theories. This section will breed a lot of theories there, even to this day. I've heard stories as of months ago um, about the mark of the beast. And, the, the, and, and, and I'm not going to go into the theories because I don't want to em- embarrass anyone, and I don't, wanna, I, d- I don't want to go into that. But what I want us to, to, to always be aware of and what I want us to keep in mind is that when John wrote this book, John had people, John had places, John had things in mind when he wrote this that would be identifiable by his first century churches. And so first and foremost, before we go into what does it mean for us, we are going to take time to do the best we can to look at the clues that we have in the book of Revelation to understand what John is alluding to. And then from there, what we're going to look at is the theological implications of what John is saying. And then from there, we're going to come to our time period. And we're going to look at how those theological implications play out for us today. Why? Because John does not just have the first century church in mind. John wants us to, to see the theological truths that, that he is laying out for his churches, and he wants us to be able to recognize how those truths play out in our lives. And so that's just something for us to keep in mind as we get ready to go into some pretty fantastic um, portions of Revelation. Not as if the portions that we've already read haven't been fantastic. But um, So I just want us to keep that in mind. We're not going to be identifying the specific code and unlocking it for, um, for our time. I don't think that's John's heart. What we are going to be doing is looking at the theological truths through the evidence that he gave, uh, through the story that he's telling his churches, so that we can identify how those play out in our lives today. Because I believe that's how Revelation should be, should be read, and I believe that's how it is most beneficial for us as the people of God here today as we face the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right? Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me today, and I hope that this was helpful. I hope that you have a little bit better understanding of this passage, and I look forward to hitting 13 with you next week. We'll see you guys later.